dentist. He's back already? Again? Oh no. I gotta go. See ya. Yeah, bye. Hey, Shelly. Hi, Doc Summer. Long time no see. So you got one in the oven? Um, yeah, but he didn't have teeth yet. Well, make sure you come in now. No pregnancy's tough on the dentine. Sure thing, Doc Summer. So I don't know if you remember this, Lee, but like 15, 16? I want to say like it was so long ago, possibly like 16 years ago. Uh, we, we had a trip, a band trip, in which we had to go to, I, I want to say it was Orlando, Florida, but it, honestly, it's been so long that I don't quite remember. <laughs> it was San Antonio. Hang on. It's, it was San Antonio <laughs> that we went there. And I believed I was rooming with you because we, we, we got like four people into a room and I, I don't remember if it was like randomly assigned or if we chose this, but I remember I was rooming with you and we had to, uh, it, it was at the end of the day and we were all winding down and we were all starting to brush and floss our teeth. And I remember all three of us, not including you, were complaining about how much it hurt the floss. We were like, oh man, like, do you ever like bleed one of you flosses? Like, yeah, man, it totally happens to me and all that stuff. And I remember you just like came in from like the side door and you were like, you were flossing your teeth and you were like, oh no, man, you got to like floss every day to stop the bleeding stuff. And then you just pulled out right after there. <laughs> I remember thinking, I was like, wait, is that true? Like, is that how you, is that how you stop bleeding on the gums? Yeah, I believe that's true, right? Like if you're, if your gums are bleeding, it's, they're sensitive and I, I maybe, uh, maybe different types of floss. We talked about this on another episode of Northern Exposure where I think it was like Ruth Ann was talking about waxed and unwaxed floss. And I didn't mm -hmm. even realize that was, that there were options, you know, but that's interesting. Um, that memory, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I floss regularly, uh, but I, you know, I, I try to, I try to floss every once in a while, especially like even like after meals, you know, I, I will floss. So that maybe that's above and beyond because most people would floss just at night or like, you know, when they're at the end of the day. Yeah, that's pretty much my my flossing routine is that like it's after dinner, but like I brush twice a day. This is very riveting uh, podcast discussion right now. <laughs> this is extremely well, <laughs> exciting. Well, what are we talking about, Charles? What is the, the subject here? <laughs> All right. So what we're talking about here is not our dental routine. What we're here to talk about is Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television series. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. Thanks. My name is Lee, and I'm a huge fan of the show Northern Exposure. I've seen the series a couple times, and uh, especially like the earlier seasons, a lot. Uh, but, you know, we're revisiting season five now, and Charles, you're new to the show, Every episode for you is a first time watch. Now, you know, we're in season five, so you've seen a lot of episodes at this point. Uh, technically, this is the 66th episode of Northern Exposure. So you've seen a lot of episodes. And as you said, this is the Northern Overexposure podcast where we overanalyze the show. And at the end of each episode, we like to bring on a guest to get a fresh perspective on each episode. Usually it's someone who has never seen the show before. And by doing so, we are expanding the reach of Northern Exposure, which is an, uh, a TV show that's over 30 years old. It's never been available for streaming. So we got to get the word out and, and try, to, try to just, you know, shout from the rooftops about, about this series that we love. Yeah. So who do we got on the list today? Who are the directors? Who are the writers? Yes. So this episode is called Jaws of Life. It was season five, episode three. 
I guess, you know, from that opening soundbite, we got some dentistry talk. So maybe that's where Jaws comes into the title. Uh, the, well, I'm curious to see. We're going to have to work in some of these plot lines. Like, wh- why, why choose this title? We'll get into that. The director of this episode is Jim Charleston. It's his first and only time directing Northern Exposure. But he seems to have a lot of credits as first AD, assistant director, on Northern Exposure and many other TV shows. And he does go on to direct other TV like X-Files, and, and just, he, he does a lot of work directing TV. The writers were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who have been all over the series so far. They're great, fantastic writers who have written some of our favorite episodes. And they will go on uh, with David Chase to work on The Sopranos after this. And lastly, the air date, October 4th, 1993. Ah, so one and done right here. Well, I would say actually that you wouldn't be able to tell that it was a newcomer right here. I thought that this episode was pretty peak northern exposure. Uh, Even without Joel Fleischman, I felt Mm. that like this was a pretty good return to form. Though, like I've been saying for the past two episodes, I think that they're starting to populate the town with extras, I find. Because in that scene that we were just talking about where Shelly is meeting with the dentist, she walks down the road and there's just children playing jump rope or hopscotch. It's just that there's a lot more happening on the screen, I feel, than in earlier seasons. And I want to say that's a conscientious choice by the showrunners, uh, the people above, that say, like, we want to make the town look a little bit more lived in. Which I'm a little bit, like, it's got positive aspects, but... The thing about Sicily, Alaska is that it only has like 800 something people in it. There isn't <laughs> yeah. like, it doesn't need to conjure the feeling of a hustle and bustle in town. Yeah, you're right. They are um, introducing, are they're like assigning extras names. So, you know, even when she's walking down the street and talking to this little girl, she calls her by the name Barbara. Like we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, that's Barbara. You know, this returning cast member that, you know, but we were only seeing her this first time. And I think later in the brick, Chris is uh, talking to some other patrons that are seated at the bar and he give, he names them, you know, when he's talking to them. So yeah, it definitely feels like they're trying to flesh that out. And pros and cons, you know, of that is, you know, the cons, as, as you just listed, it's like Sicily is a very small town. It should feel small. Um, we don't necessarily need to invite in a lot of characters, but maybe what they're going for here is to just make it feel real and more lived in. And it's not just like we're seeing the the main cast on these like stages alone. It, it feels like, you know, uh, fake and staged if it's just a couple people in town. Um, because really 839 isn't a lot, but it, you know, we would see some people walking down the street though. though yeah. This opening that we're talking about with the Shelly and the dentist, it, it's a hustle bustle. There's a lot, a lot going on on uh, Main Street, Sicily. But yeah, you said this is sort of a return to form for Northern Exposure. I'm guessing you mean sort of like it feels very Northern Exposure-ish or like it has sort of the formulaic elements of a classic episode. Uh, I will say at the top here, I actually wasn't really digging this episode. I watched it in two parts. Uh, maybe that has to do with my appreciation of it as I kind of separated it off. But it has... Um, I don't know, it has some things that do feel a bit out of place or a little foreign to what we know, uh, the rules of Northern Exposure, but I can only think of a couple instances. I'm very uh, interested to have this conversation now because I want to see, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I'm i excited to see what what uh, what your 
picking up on. Yeah, I felt like a lot of the plot lines are peak Northern Exposure, like existentially fraught Chris. That's, you know, <laughs> that is Northern Exposure to a T. And other ones, I was thrown for a little bit of a loop on how to connect them thematically to the other plot lines. This one was actually a little bit harder for me to analyze, but I think I have something right there. But yeah, let's just dive into it. Which one should we be examining first? Because we got three plot lines. We got Maurice and his statue. We have the dentist who kind of interweaves with all of the characters. And like I mentioned before, Chris. Yeah, we got Chris in an existential crisis, but let's save that one for a little later. We talked a bit about the dentist in the opening, and I definitely want to talk talk more about that. But let's let's talk about Maurice, who we have yet to introduce in this episode. Actually, I think it is the beginning of the episode, like even before the title music. The way this episode starts is uh, someone is knocking on Maurice's door, and it's Ed. Ed is <laughs> Ed is surprised to find that the door is locked, which is very uncommon for Northern Exposure. Ed can usually get into any, you know, he's always breaking into Joel's apartment, uh, Joel's cabin, you know, uh, unannounced, but this time... Maurice, I guess, wants some privacy for some, actually I don't remember why um, he has it locked. I just remember that Ed is there to deliver a package. I think it's because he's trying to keep this on the down low until it can be revealed. Uh, this being the wax statue that he's making. Yes, he's got a wax statue in his house and Ed is delivering this package that contains um, the eyes for the wax statue. I think they mention in a later scene that they, they make the eyes out of uh, acrylic now instead of glass. Um, but yeah, there's this guy who, who's, I guess, a bit of a, a wax statue artist there. Is he in the scene or is it come later? No, no, no. He's in the scene. He's like, he's um, dressing up the final touches on Maurice. And uh, we've learned that Maurice is going to be uh, featured as a wax statue in an exhibit called Rugged Individualists of the 20th Century at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Uh, I don't, I feel, I can't remember if I've ever been to a wax museum. Maybe I've done it once, but it definitely didn't leave a strong memory with me. Um, so I'm not really sure. I, it se seems like Madame Tussauds, which is a real place as far as Google uh, will tell me, uh, seems like that's <laughs> a very famous one. Have you yeah, ever, it's super famous. Have you ever done any? I only know of wax museums from uh, Scooby-Doo. Like whenever the gang, we like go to like some yeah. <laughs> haunted place and like the wax uh, dummies would come to life or something like that. I've never actually been to a wax museum myself. Uh, what I thought was really interesting in the scene is that uh, Maurice was saying that this was for the rugged individualism, like you were saying, and they had already selected some other individuals. Um the first one that he mentions is Ross Perot. Uh, for those, I think our listeners would know who Ross Perot is. <laughs> I don't actually. know. Actually, but for our uh, younger individuals, <laughs> Ross Perot was like this incredibly rich businessman mm. who had founded Electronic Data System Corporation, and he later ran as an independent in the 1992 and 1996 U.S. presidential election. He's actually the only third-party candidate ever allowed on the debate floor with the other two major political parties, mm. and he's actually the most successful of all of the third-party candidates. He won about 18% of the popular vote in 1992. Wow. Uh, the thing that I found really interesting that I did not know before this is that I thought that Ross Perot had a major effect on the 1992 election between George Sr. Bush and Bill Clinton, 
But it turns out it's actually pretty contentious on what his effect was. Because a lot of the experts are saying that he actually siphoned off equal amounts of votes from both candidates. Mm. And in the grand scheme of things, the only place that he had like a large uh, impact, like uh, perceived impact, would be in states that were already heavily favored toward either George Bush or Bill Clinton. So, hmm. yeah, in the grand scheme of things, he actually had limited electoral impact, which I thought was really interesting. I never I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just learning about this guy. But that's pretty, yeah, that is very interesting that he did make such a dent on having a lot of votes to his name. But when it comes down to just Republican and Democrat, it seems like he drew equally from both. So it, it really had very small impact in the grand scheme. <laughs> uh, the second one that he mentioned was, he has a strange last name, Robert Aplanap. <laughs> I can't remember this in the episode. This is in that first I think, scene. <laughs> I think they call him Bob, like okay. Bob Aplanap. Yeah, uh, his major thing was that he invented the aerial soul spray valve and he was actually like uh, confident of President. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, Nixon. <laughs> President. Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Very interesting. The one that I'm most interested in was Akio Morita. He was the co-founder of Sony, the company ah, that makes yeah. microelectronics. The company Sony derives its name from Sonus, the Latin for sound, and Sunny Boys, which is a loan word <laughs> taken from America that describes smart and presentable young men. Uh, it can be said that the word sunny boy is the transitive period of your life where you move from school to the adult working force. So in a way, uh, the name sunny boy suggests that everyone is a rugged individual trying to make it out into the world. I think it's a very interesting phrase and I don't know if it was intentional between the writers of today's episode to utilize that. But either way, I think that it's kind of neat to see uh, Sunny Boys and rugged individualism being played together for themes today. Yeah, it's definitely a, um, a nice synchronicity that happened. Yeah, it seems like it would be such a stretch for the writers to include that. Like, I think the direct line is you know, just, you know, success in business. Sony is a very successful company at the time. Uh, so, but, but it is, yeah, what you just pointed out does have like a, a strange harmony, like a strange synchronicity going on. Uh, well for that scene, I think it basically just ends with, uh, you know, they get the eyes through the package in the mail. Maurice hands it to the artist and he says, all right, I'm almost done here. Here, take a look. And it's actually a really odd button for the scene because it's just like Maurice's reaction to seeing the statue, which is um, like a, he he goes from like a very inquisitive stare, like he's trying to see it. And then he kind of smirks and has a surprised chuckle and then fade to black, fade in the, uh, or like cut in the opening title music. I thought it was a weird, a weird little button there. Yeah. I think it ends with uh, the statue's head. Hmm. Like we finally get to see the eyes. Like it finally comes on the screen right there. Yeah. I guess it is. Uh, they talk about it later in the episode, kind of an uncanny valley effect where it's, it looks, you know, pretty real, but you know, just fake enough that it, it kind of gives you the heebie jeebies. Um, all right. Well, yeah, we've, that's basically a lot of what Maurice's plot line is, uh, which is kind of maybe one of my criticisms of this episode is that it seems like, uh, you know, we have a very clear, 
problems and dilemmas in, in each of the storylines, but I feel like they're kind of just reiterated um, again and again. Like they, there's not a lot of, uh, actually, I think you brought this up in our last episode, how something in one of the storylines was very lateral movement. It didn't really change or move up and down. It was just kind of like, uh, here's a reminder that Maurice is old. That's what it was in the last episode. <laughs> and every scene was just reminding you that Maurice is old and and there's not really a lot of action or change uh, that he does. Uh, he, he just kind of reacts to the fact that he's getting older. Um, but let's see, the next scene for Maurice is uh, back with the wax artist. And um, actually, yeah, I, re- <laughs> I wrote down like, what is this artist like talking about? Because um, he says something about portraying the body without the soul. That's like something he learned in art school or whenever he was uh, preparing to be a wax artist. And I think what he means is that um, when you're trying to portray a subject in wax, you don't want to add any of your personality, any of your artistic expression. You want to really just make it as lifelike um, as possible. That's actually really interesting because I actually have the opposite viewpoint. Because I think that at one point... Maurice is talking about the sculptures that are populating Rodin's museum. And the wax artist says, well, those sculptures aren't like exact of what the people they're trying to depict. Because uh, he says that like it's the body without the soul. And I think what he's saying is that it's impossible to do a one-to-one recreation of what the subject originally looked like. The artist can only imbue what he thinks it looks like, what it looks like from the artist's eyes. So in a way, it's impossible to always get what you feel like on the inside and portray it to the outside. What you are on the outside is what someone would just paint and what they're able to see. So in the context of this scene, I think what he's saying is that like, I'm focusing on the things that I think make you Maurice, whereas you yourself might think differently. So in this instance, he thinks the eyes are what makes Maurice. Hmm. Yeah. Like every work of art is just an interpretation, um, which is just that artist's expression of what they're seeing and what they're picturing. Um, and it's very hard to make it realistic. And I guess even in that case, like this reminds me of a, a scene in the movie Maze that Rob Morrow directed where he's talking about how he's he's very critical of realistic or realism in art because it's no expression. It's just like, you know, copying what is like a photograph or it's like copying what you're seeing without having any sort of uh, artistic expression there. And uh, let's see, you said the the wax artist here is like, it's in the eyes. And I, is this a scene where he like kind of talks about painting the eyes? Remember there's something going on. Maybe that's earlier when he's showing it to Ed and doing uh, some certain, like he has little little techniques that he uses that he's very proud of, the, the wax artist, mm-hmm. um, some, some little tricks he's got. Turns out he was a mortician before he was a wax artist. And, uh, you know, that I guess it kind of like one leads to the next, maybe. I wrote down, I don't think it's a very great read, but I wrote down that something about this scene made me think about Maurice, like thinking about like preserving a memory or like, you know, after his death, uh, is this wax sculpture going to be like preserving a memory? I'm not sure why I wrote that down. 
This was, this was like no, the first I, half of the episode. <laughs> I think that's a really good read for what's going to happen mm, okay. uh, all the way up to the end. And I want to elaborate on that once we reach there. I think it's interesting that Maurice is uncomfortable with the idea of being uh, sculpted by someone who has working hands rather than an artist's hand. Mm-hmm. The reasoning why is because he has an idea of what an artist should be. In Maurice's mind, I'm guessing that he assumes like, Maybe they should have grown up in like some sort of like impoverished place and is impassioned by art and knew it from the beginning. You know, he's got this prescribed bias of what an artist should be. And he's very taken offhand whenever he mentions like, oh, I used to do something else as a profession uh, to make money. And like, and I wanted more money. So that's why I decided to become a sculptor. So there's a dichotomy of identities happening right here within Maurice's mind seeing like what he thinks an artist should be and what an artist actually is, which kind of plays right back into the idea of what we're sculpting, of what we see and what the subject is actually seeing. Mm, Yeah, having like a preconceived uh, idea of what a artist should be. And then also like that artist has their own idea of what their art piece will be. But really it just comes down to execution. How can you execute that piece of art? And interpretation, like how others will interpret it when they see it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of communication that goes from idea uh, to art, and and from this preconceived idea to reality, a real person, this uh, wax artist who, you know, was a mortician <laughs> before he was this uh, this artist that Maurice maybe preconceived. Uh, the next scene with Maurice is he's inviting over some friends. Let's say I think it's like Shelley. Holling and Ruthann to come check out the statue. And actually like the opening of that scene is like a shot of some tusks either like hanging above the door or like at the wall, uh, on the wall at, at Maurice's house. And I just thought it was also kind of odd. I've never seen those tusks. I'm not sure. It was like a close up on tusks. I don't know if you remember this shot. Yeah, I think I think it's on a wars, is it not? Let, let me see. Yeah, so the shot begins with uh, a warus with his tusks. And it's actually really interesting because uh, it's framed a little bit more toward the right side, but on the left side, there's candles that are being lit. But the candles and the tusk kind of look alike. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. Yeah, the just like the color and the shape of the candles are very similar to the tusks. And maybe that's a commentary. You know, candles are wax. When you think of wax, uh, you... You know, the the things that come to mind, probably not wax statues. Uh, the first thing would be candles, I would say. Beeswax. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's some sort of expression to say, to compare like this uh, this this walrus, uh, which I think is supposed to be like it was a real animal that was taxidermied, though, I don't know, it kind of looks like a fake walrus too when you're looking at it, <laughs> so it's hard to say. I think... <laughs> I think there's actually two ways to read this scene. One is the way you described it, but then the second one has like a sub, like <laughs> a like you know like an A B. Uh, what is it called? Um, what what is it? Is it a sub notation? Whenever it goes to like okay, one yeah. and then it goes sub caption yeah. like sub notation. Yeah, footer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what I mean by this, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Is that the candles in the war's tusk look alike and. One is an actual object, and the other one is just a decoration set piece right here. So we're getting the idea, again, of something that's real and something that's fake. 
Uh, they look very similar, but they serve very different purposes right here. Now, the Warus, like we said, could be real, though. And if that is a real Warus tusk, then that's still like kind of playing into the same themes mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. there. I just thought it was really interesting if like the Warus itself was fake and it, it kind of looks like a real object right here. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? I might have went too far. Are you saying like, well, I don't know, but are you saying like uh, how uh, some something is maybe passing as like an illusion or like an imitation of of reality? Yeah. This this go. fake walrus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's very short. Uh, so, you know, it's just kind of the opening of this, like right as everyone is walking in and Maurice goes to the wax statue, presents it, and starts talking about um, all these little details about it. And it's clear that everyone else here is pretty bored after just a few seconds. So they kind of break off and start looking for the snack tray, like the hors d'oeuvres. And uh, they they later will sit down to dinner. And I, I guess like, I mean, it makes sense. Like someone starts making light of the situation, like kind of uh, they're they're all sitting around at the dinner table eating, and the wax statue is like standing there, kind of looming over them. And they start making jokes about it. And Maurice doesn't appreciate this, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, what do you do after sitting in a room with this wax statue for what, like, twenty, thirty minutes? Like, what else can you say? Yeah, there's actually like a subtext line uh, right before that parlays really neatly into the scene where Marie says, Hey, careful. Don't, don't touch the wax statue, Shelly. It's actually a lot more delicate mm-hmm. than it looks. So obviously that's playing into the next scene where we can see that Maurice is a lot more sensitive <laughs> yeah. to what people say about him. Cause what you're saying about the statue inevitably could mean it's what I mean about you because it's, it looks so similar to him. So, I think that that's what it's trying to show is that Maurice is actually uh, not comfortable with the idea of people judging him. Yeah. And, you know, just showing that another another read on that is like just showing that he's kind of overprotective and caring of this statue means that, uh, yeah, there's a very strange kind of bond between, I mean, guess, I guess what you're saying too is maybe it reflects himself uh, in more than one way. Like, you know, it, it can something that he projects himself onto maybe, or I don't know. Right. Yeah, this is <laughs> making my head spin in a way, but. It's a very, I think this theme goes like really deep and it, it can keep returning. Cause actually, I think it actually returns in the very next scene, which involves both Chris and Maurice. Uh, Chris is late to work. Uh, if anything, he's not going to show up to work and Maurice has to fill in for him and he's on the air He's filling up the dead air. He's making sure that everything's running smoothly. And then he kind of goes and talks about the dentist that's in town. And Marie says, you you know, take it from me. You can't be too good to your teeth, people. You know, you got to take care of them. (laughs) And the thing is, is that if you don't take care of your teeth, they fall out and you have to get replacement teeth. You have to find something that's very similar to your real teeth, but they're not actual teeth. Yes, like a a false False teeth, you know, and and again, we're kind of talking about this idea of illusion and imitating reality. Uh, yeah, that's very that's very interesting. Yeah, I th- I don't know when it starts. Uh, perhaps it hasn't started yet, but um, I think I think it starts actually earlier than than this 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 moment. But it definitely builds throughout the episode. But the idea that Maurice 
will slowly uh, become a little more and more disturbed or bothered by the statue. And again, like I'm probably jumping a little too ahead because it. I think it. I think the, like the groundwork is laid for that, but he doesn't really start talking about that openly just yet. I think the next scene with with Maurice or the statue is when Chris comes to Maurice's house to like apologize for missing the broadcast and not being there for work. And uh, Chris is, at first, he's fooled by the statue. Like he walks into the house and starts talking to the statue as if it were really Maurice. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a bit funny, but of course we're hammering again and again this sort of uh, connection, uh, one-for-one relationship between Maurice or, you know, Maurice and this statue. But this scene is more about Chris, I would say, than it is about Maurice. So we can kind of gloss over it unless you want to talk more about some things in this scene. Uh, I think we should save it for when we talk about Chris because I think it's very pivotal Yeah, uh, for his character right here. Why don't we move to the next scene that involves Ed? Yes. Uh, so Ed is like cleaning at Maurice's house. I think he's vacuuming the carpet and he is talking to the statue. Actually, I think it's pretty interesting. We see it from Maurice's perspective. So we see a little bit removed and Ed is just talking to nobody, but obviously the statue's there. So we can see that Ed is talking to the statue as if it were Maurice. Uh, I got a little soundbite for this that I can play. What are you doing, Ed? Sweeping the carpets, Maurice. No, you're talking to that statue. Your statue? Yeah, I guess I was. Look, Ed, if you've got something to say, you say it to me. You got that? Okay, Maurice. But, uh... Well, it's just that he's a little easier to talk to. The statue? Well, he doesn't throw my thoughts off like you do sometimes. I don't throw your thoughts off, son. What are you talking about? Well, kind of like now, Maurice. I'm not in the business of throwing people's thoughts off. Is that clear? And another thing. I don't want you talking to this thing like it's me. This is not me, Savvy. This is me. I know, Maurice, but there's some of you in there. Bit of a kind of um, spooky little ending line there for that for that exchange. There's a bit of bit of Maurice inside of this statue. Uh, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> it's like that. Uh, what is that story where the guy paints a picture of the other man and it's like soul is in that picture? Is it Dorian like the Gray? Picture gets old, but the man. Huh? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Dorian Gray or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little Dorian Gray situation going on. That here. actually is really interesting. I did not think of that, but it is exactly what's happening. You know, well, well, in Dorian Gray, it's like the man stays young, but the picture gets older. Uh, but in this situation, Maurice, he seems kind of combative now with this uh, statue, maybe jealous of it. Uh, Ed has already explained at least one quality that the statue is better than Maurice in, 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 in Ed's perspective. And Maurice is going to get old and die. We're talking about preserving memory. And this statue is just going to be there forever. I think maybe he says, he talks about this later, but you know, people are going to be able to look at the statue forever or at least a lot longer than Maurice will be on this earth. Yeah. So the statue is going to be immortalized like all statues are, whereas we as human beings will slowly, but surely, <laughs> fall into uh like an uh, like an you know the ocean we'll, we'll fall into <laughs> forgetfulness people will never remember us it's only what like the physical art pieces remain and even then that's like like we talked about that's not an accurate representation of who the individual was right there i mean we don't actually think that lincoln was like 
uh, what, what, 30 feet tall? How big is that statue in Washington? <laughs> That's actually, sorry, that is a good uh, read on this. I mean, this is further in this plot line. But yeah, Maurice uh, will eventually want to, um, not to preserve this wax statue. So, so yeah, maybe part of his reasoning there, which is unspoken, um, but I think we can interpret from what you just said, Charles, I think part of his reasoning might be because it's an imperfect representation of his memory. Uh, even, even when it is so lifelike and realistic, he would rather it, uh, be destroyed than to, than to remain, I guess. Right. Yeah. But I think we're jumping the gun just a little <laughs> yeah. bit right yes, there. Yeah, this is, go ahead. Yeah, the next scene is a short scene, but it's basically Maurice wandering his house, getting some tryptophan, trying to fall asleep, and he stumbles upon his statue that's in the living room. And he starts talking to it and saying, like, like, why are you looking at me like this? Why do you make your eyes so small? And he's now he's realizing that the artist is imbuing what he saw in Maurice rather than what Maurice is seeing in Maurice. Mm, yeah. Yeah, this is good. I, I'm liking this storyline a lot more uh, after just like discussing it with you and seeing what you found in it. Because uh, I, I, at first I was, I was really not digging this episode. But, um, but yeah, this is, <laughs> this is coming together. This plot line's really lining up. Uh, yeah, so that, let's see. I don't, I'm trying to find where I am in the episode now. There is a bit... That it doesn't involve Maurice or the statue necessarily, but Ed is um, at K Bear, and what he says is is pertains to this situation. He's uh, well, he's filling in for Chris, uh, but I think we've seen this once before. Kind of want to say it was like in season one or something. Uh, no, 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 it was season two, the big kiss because Chris lost his voice, and. Uh, Ed had to take over Caver, and that was pretty awesome. <laughs> this time, he's—I think he's playing like some electronic, maybe some hip hop. I can't actually remember. I don't know what song it was, but it was you know, it was very hip, very uh, young music, I guess that uh, than what we normally hear on Caver. And he signs off with uh, with a question to the listener. He says, "Mirrors. You hold two of them facing each other. What's on them? I don't know." So yeah, that's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, this sort of staring into Maurice staring into the statue, um, but also just yeah, such a uh, interesting thought experiment. What happens when you right. face two mirrors together? Yeah, they're just piling on the <laughs> subtext of yeah. uh, mirrors. I mean, it's a fun one to play with uh, the concept of identity and statues and mirrors and all that. Uh, I, I think it's funny that. Chris is going through something, so Maurice has to fill in, and then Maurice goes through something, and then Ed has to fill in. It's like a perpetual domino. <laughs> yeah, <keeps> like whenever <laughs> someone is mentally incapacitated, like the next the chain of command. Has to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I would say, like, I guess Ed is the most rock steady. I mean, he's not perfect. He definitely goes through, you know, crisis involving identity himself. But I, I feel like compared to the other individuals in the town, he's he's probably the most stable. Ed, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, he's just like such a good fallback on anything. You know, he he can do whatever you need. He's the uh, the gopher, as I think someone, I think Maurice calls him in one episode. It's uh, just all around jack of all trades. You know, I was just trying to pin down a word that I was thinking of talking about representations and uh, illusions and mirrors. Um, simulacra, or I guess simulacrum. That's what I'm thinking of. That's uh, is that how you pronounce it? 
I think so. Um, let's see. Oh, let me, God, let me pull up a I've little, been calling it simulacrum. Simulacrum. Let me pull up. That, that a, doesn't sound right, though. <laughs> yeah, let me pull up a, a, a pronunciation just in case. Wow. Well, um, actually, so Google says simulacrum. Simulacrum. Wow. So I don't know if that's actually right. I, I say simulacrum. Simulacrum is what you were saying, right? Um, yeah, I guess what is, uh, da, 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 trying to see if it's like, oh, it's Latin. So, I mean, I don't speak Latin, but I'm sure, um, let's see, romance languages. I don't know. Yeah, there's the stress. Like, how do you know where to put the stress? And um, anyway, simulacrum. So how do you say it? Simulacrum. That's what Google said. I don't know if, that I mean, I, like, I would go with that. Simulacrum. That sounds like something from Tron. That sounds very futuristic <laughs> and electronic. Yeah. Uh, an image or representation of someone or something. Uh, another definition is an unsatisfactory imitation or substitute. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, where were we? Yeah. K-Bear, Chain of Command. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is our next entry in this plot line? Uh, it involves Ed again because Ed is delivering a fax to Maurice saying like, oh, Madame Tussauds organization, they're getting back in contact with you because uh, Maurice wants to get rid of the statue as fast as he can. He wants to ship it off to that museum. And he reads the letter and it finds that their opinion of our directorship, that rugged individualist uh, embody, you know, we decided to go another way. We decided to go with Richard Branson. Who is um, oh, yeah, Virgin. the CEO of Virgin yeah. uh, Air Flights? <laughs> Who later went to space too? Like, you know, yeah. not at the time of this episode, but he is a bit of an astronaut himself, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's crazy that he's still relevant like 30 <laughs> years from now. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but I think it's really, I, I think it's a neat thing to observe that this organization did not see this value that Maurice sees in himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maurice sees himself as like, I am this frontiersman. I am forging Alaska with my own hands. I deserve to be up there with the greats, the people that forged your own path. And Madame Tussauds organization is saying like, we don't see that in you, actually. Again, expressing the dichotomy between what we see in ourselves and what others see in ourselves. Yeah, like the interpretation of... Now, if we're relating it to art, like the audience, you know, what they uh, what they perceive or what they get from a piece of art. Now, this Madame Tussauds um, say about Maurice that uh, he he lacks sufficient Commonwealth content. And like you're saying, he's like, it's all interpretation. I guess Ed says that Richard Branson, uh, you know, Virgin Airlines, he put free video and coach versus... What, how is that? what we can say about, yeah, how is that? I mean, there's that more. a groundbreaking idea? There is more, uh, I guess, uh, humanitarian work or something that that maybe Madame Tussauds is looking at from from Richard Branson's record. But the, the example that Ed lists is free video and coach versus Maurice being, as you said, this frontiersman who is, uh, who is developing and, um, you know, creating, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know, you know, just creating uh, uh, this new frontier, like really developing this area. Yeah, and it's funny that it's individuals that are uh, creating replicas of another individual that are judging an individual. Oh, wow, yeah. And as a gesture of their appreciation, it says in the letter, uh, Maurice gets to keep the statue, but he doesn't want to keep it. Yeah, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And that brings us to the next scene where... He is at the brick 
alone with just Dave, who's uh, finishing up. You know, he's kind of wanting to get out of there. He's saying that he's got a, you know, he's got a future engagement in the morning. And Maurice is musing to himself, saying, like, maybe I could put my wax self in the Hollywood Wax Museum. But then I would be with, like, the other common people. And I'd have all those people beneath me judging me. And he's really unhappy with that. And he's just not comfortable being in an area that he doesn't see fit for himself. Even his perceived statue, he takes mind of where that thing is. And he's not comfortable with the idea of being judged by those lesser than him. Or maybe even just entirely. Like, maybe he's just not comfortable being judged. Yeah, that's a good point. You're, yeah, as you're saying, uh, he doesn't want to... Uh, you know, he doesn't want to keep the statue, but he doesn't want to give it to like the Hollywood Museum or maybe anywhere because he doesn't want people gawking at him and looking at him. He doesn't want to be uh, interpreted or perceived by other people through through this one representation. And like you're saying, uh, you know, if we're using this the wax statue as a as a um, analog here, he doesn't even want to like. He, he's very specific on where he wants it to go because I think Dave says, well, why don't you just like, you know, you could hold on to it. And, and Maurice says, no, I don't want to like keep it in my root cellar and it'll always be down there. I'll be thinking about it when I'm drinking brandy uh, or when I'm cooking in the kitchen. Like I'll think about it's right there beneath me. I think Dave says like, yeah, it's like being buried alive or something. <laughs> it's a very creepy sort of feeling uh, as well. Yeah, I, I guess he just doesn't like other people's opinion of him, which is kind of strange because he seems like such a, you know, pull myself up on my bootstraps type of fellow. Like, who cares what other people are thinking about? But it's really weighing on him whenever he sees the statue that everyone's embodying their own values of what they think Maurice is into him. Well, maybe it's kind of what you're saying is like he has his own, um, he has his own idea of who he is. And that is a, a personal idea that he has, and that's his image of himself. No matter what he will do, even if that idea is a true idea, if that really is, you know, he's Maurice, maybe he knows himself better than anyone else. Even if he's right, everyone else is going to have their own personal opinions. And this is the whole idea that we're talking about, this central thesis that you've got, Charles, about how, like, you know, no matter what, there's... Uh, there's always like a disconnect or some sort of communication that has to go on. It, it's a, a expression interpretation. It's never a one-for-one one exchange. Right, which makes the last scene a little bit of a head-scratcher, <laughs> which is the one that I thought about a little bit. Because uh, what happens next is that Ed and Maurice pull up to this uh, garbage dump, and they're going to put the wax statue there. Ed kind of asks him, like, oh, no, Maurice, like, yeah. come on, let me have him, man. Like, let me just... Let me just take care of him. I'll make sure there's never a scrap of dust on him. And Marie says, like, oh, you're probably just going to use him for one of your jokes, like a coat rack or something. Again, signifying to, like, I don't want me to be used in this manner. And Ed gives up on the idea, and they toss him into this, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's like a garbage dump of sorts. It's like where they, like, push all the garbage together, and then, like, a machine comes and, like, smashes it all. Yeah, I guess it's just like a garbage heap. Yeah, and they just keep piling stuff on top. Yeah, and then they destroy the statue right here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not very climatic, like decapitated, honestly. I guess. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it kind of like cuts away and then it cuts back, and the head is like off the the statue. I mean, I wrote down like, I guess you can't 
fling a thing three times. Like they've already done two flings <laughs> in the season. So it's like, how do we get rid of this statue? Cause obviously Maurice doesn't want to keep it. He doesn't want anyone holding on to it. Um, yeah, you're saying yeah. maybe a little bit of a head scratcher here. What are your thoughts on on the conclusion? So Maurice destroys the statue, which in effect is destroying other people's opinions of him. Like he's saying, like, I don't want you to think of me this way. I want to take control of what others' uh, opinions of me are. I'm going to destroy the statue. No one can ever see it again. And what I am is here. It's me. It's what you're looking at. Yeah. But like we said before, even if it's the real him, it doesn't matter if it's a statue or not. People's opinions of you are always going to be held to that individual. So, like, let's say a hypothetical scenario, Bill Gates. And we all have an image of what we think Bill Gates is. Now, let's say you meet Bill Gates at a particularly low point in his life. He's had a very bad day. And he comes off as very rude to you. Well, then your opinion of Bill Gates is that he's a jackass. <laughs> but then in reality, what if he was just having that one really bad day and he's actually a person that donates a large amount of his wealth to combat inequality or uh, diseases, yada, yada, it doesn't matter. The public's perception of him is much different than what you're seeing. So even if Maurice is destroying the statue and symbolically saying that I'm taking hold of my own destiny, is he though? Because like it seems inevitable that you cannot sway other people's opinions of you. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, uh, we can applaud the idea that like he's taking control of his destiny, but you know, there's always imperfections. There's those bad days where something might go wrong and people might have uh, an incorrect perception of who you are just based on one event. But I guess a positive outlook that you can apply here is, you know, Maurice is taking this matter into his own hands and uh, perhaps he is endeavoring to just be this ideal person that he sees himself. He sees himself, he he holds his image to a certain standard and he believes that this is Maurice Minifield. This is who I want to be and who I should be. And he's going to live every day to try to represent himself as as his best self. And I think that's like healthy for for anyone to have sort of this oh, okay. high self-image. I see what you're getting at. Yeah, it's a, that's, the, that's the positive... Uh, positive perspective we could put on this ending, but I also agree that this also, this ending suggests that, you know, there's no, there's no correct answer here because it's always going to be imperfect no matter what, when people are, are perceiving you. No, I think what you said has a really positive outlook spin. And I don't think that <laughs> uh, it's an incorrect view either. I, I think that's a really good interpretation of the scene. Sure. Sure. Well, thanks. Yeah. I think, I think there's a, what's beautiful about this uh, now that I'm seeing about this plot line, what's beautiful is uh, that it's got, it's such a head spin, you know, there's a lot to think about and maybe that's uh, keying into what you're saying about Northern exposure being so um, thought provoking and existential in a ways. We'll talk about Chris uh, as well. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to think about in this episode. Yeah. Maurice ends the uh, whole thing, you know, right before he tosses that wax statue into the garbage heap. He says, it stinks to high heaven out here. I'm surprised he can do this without a mask. Hmm. You think like the mask being like, a also, I mean, obviously the, oh, yeah. uti the utility here <laughs> is to cover the stench, but a mask being like to hide your hide your real persona or something or to give it to yeah. give off a, a different uh, outward persona definitely I, th I think they're definitely having fun with the uh with the subtexts of this episode <laughs> lots of motifs there yeah yeah all right well let's reel it back to the beginning and talk about 
the dentist, I think. The next plot line begins with Doc Summers, the dentist who is rolling through town. Is this like a common thing in the 90s? Would it be like a traveling dentist mobile? I think it has to do with uh, Sicily being such a small town. They don't have a year-round dentist office. Uh, they'll just have like, uh, same thing with the optometrist. There was like the optomobile that came mm. to town in season three. Yeah, I guess this is the first time we've seen a dentist, right? There, there hasn't yeah, been another. This is the, right, go ahead. Yeah, this is the first one, right? Yeah, there hasn't been, there hasn't been, I don't think there's been another. Sorry, I'm thinking about the optometrist mobile thing. I honestly thought it was her again. I was like, oh, they <laughs> yeah. brought her back again. But what's happening is that Doc Summers is pulling into town and it strikes fear into everyone's hearts right there. <laughs> uh, Shelly is walking down the street and uh, right before Doc Summers actually pulls up, she actually talks with Maggie a little bit. Maggie is sewing with flannel. She's making some cute outfits for the babies right there. And that's when Doc Summer rears his vehicle into the into the frame and Shelly starts retreating. And that's where the opening gambit or opening bite comes from with Shelly just retreating. Yeah, it seems like a lot of this plot line is focused on people's perception of the dentist and their thoughts surrounding that. Uh, I think at least this episode makes it seem like everyone hates going to the dentist. I actually like going to the dentist. I don't have a lot of negative, um, painful memories about the dentist. Uh, is it Charles, are you are you the type of person who dreads going to the dentist? Um, what's your what's your relationship with the dentist like? Uh, pretty similar to yours. I've never really had a cavity in my life. Um, I think it's mostly due to luck, though. <laughs> and I've only had one bad experience, and it was when I was a child. And it's not even that bad. I, I just it's just been ingrained into my memory. Is that when I was about like eight years old? I want to say uh, I went to the children's dentist, and whenever they were you know, they put you onto that little recliner seat and they start working on your teeth. The lights that they have, mm -hmm. like that, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but everyone knows what it looks like. It's got like two bulbs on the left and the right. And then in the center is just like a console and it just shines down on you. Uh, I don't know if it was like the angle or my eyes just weren't as developed, but I remember that light being incredibly blinding yeah. and I could not see and it actually hurt, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why. I just, I didn't tell them that. I didn't know how to communicate my thoughts to tell them. I just thought that was natural, like par for the course. You're just like, ah, oh, my you eyes burn. You got to like look yeah, away. Like you, <laughs> I guess you couldn't well, look away. I, I couldn't. He was like digging <laughs> through my teeth. He was like holding me down. So I just thought that was natural. Is that like when you went to the dentist, you, you got your eyes seared in by this light. <laughs> And I, I don't know why it's still ingrained <laughs> into my memory. Uh, every time I go to the dentist, I think about that sometimes to be like, is this like going to blind me like right here? I, uh, I mean, I've definitely had, I've definitely experienced pain at the dentist. Uh, I don't really associate it that much with pain. It's not, at least for me, luckily, it hasn't uh, been very intense pain. I've definitely had cavities before, um, which actually I think the, the, <laughs> The most negative experience I have about the dentist is not like physical pain, but more like emotional pain. And and the the reasoning behind it is I was a kid, you know, like at, at the children's dentist. And I remember after one checkup or cleaning, um, they would say it at the end of every checkup and cleaning, they'd be like, all right, you're good. No cavities. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. It's like, you know, they're like very happy for me. And I remember 
after one checkup, they said, all right, you're good. No cavities. And I ran to my mom, you know, as we were leaving and I was proud of the fact I said, yeah, that no cavities. And she's like, what are you talking about? You've got like three cavities right now. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He told me no cavities. Why would they lie to me? I don't know. I never got a straight answer too. I don't know what happened. Maybe they mixed me up with someone else, you know, cause they have like the dentist and the assistants going back and forth. But lady straight up told me I had no cavities. And my mom was like, oh, hate to break to you. You got like two, three cavities right now. <laughs> That's how you lose faith. I in, felt um, betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would have been fine if they just told me I had the cavities because, you know, I had cavities before that. It wasn't like my first cavity, but sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah, no, it's still a on this a little too you, long. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say like really quickly, uh, did your, did your dentistry place as a child, did it have like that thing where you can assemble um, like this it was against a wall and it had like a million pegs on it. And you would put these, uh, you put these platforms on it and you, you would create a sort of tumbling machine where you put a ball down mm. at the top and it would just keep falling on these platforms that you built. And eventually he would make it to the bottom. But the neat thing was that like, you got to create the path for it to get to the bottom. Oh, it's like a marble drop thing in a way. Yeah. Like, mar- did you have that? I used to think that was a thing for like every mm. single dentist office. This like, does. I, I thought, Everyone had that. This sounds a little familiar, but I, the one I remember more is less cool. So I don't think I had that. The one that I remember is like, it had uh, lots of like, how do I explain this? Um, Like wires, like wire paths with like beads that you could move around, sort of like an abacus, but the path wasn't a straight line. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It was like crazy, like a bowl of spaghetti, you know, like all these different uh, twists and turns. And that's fun, I guess. But after a while, you're just you're stuck to this one path that you can. Yeah, it's a predetermined path. It's very, it's very funny that they had like yours had a very predetermined path. The mom was like, literally do what you want, (laughs) but it all ends up at the bottom in a way. (laughs) Um, Oh, the other thing I remember, and actually, I think about this. Been thinking about it recently. Was Scholastic magazine. They had a bunch of Scholastic. Do, do you remember Scholastic magazine? I always wanted a subscription to that, but my parents were like, uh, no, there's no like educational value Is on this. Is it still in print? Because I might <laughs> get a subscription. I Maybe. I, I used to, I got the adult version. I got National Geographic. <laughs> okay, that wasn't nearly as fun. Hmm, if, I go, if I Google Scholastic magazine, the, the autofill says login. So I guess maybe it's no longer in print. Final issue was in 2012. Though I guess it, what would actually be cooler is like going to eBay and buying some uh, some older issues. I think it became something called Magazines Plus. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it did. It became, if you go to their website, classroommagazines.scholastic.com, mm. it, uh, you can order it from like the 2021 to 2022 editions. And oh yeah, this doesn't look as cool. Well, it's got like a giraffe on it. How do you rescue a giraffe? <laughs> Scholastic needs It's not bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I definitely, yeah, maybe that'll be a, uh, this has nothing to do with Northern Exposure. It's like, this is our Patreon, so we're going to review some Scholastic magazines. Um, no, we should really stick on Northern Exposure. What, the dentist, what are we talking about? The dentist and, uh, you know, everyone is pretty standoffish to this dentist guy. I feel like, I don't think I took notes for it, but I feel like there's a scene where he goes into the brick, the dentist does, and and everyone is just like, well, look at the time. I better get going. And like, they just like leave and, um, no, you know, he just kind of feels like a pariah in a way. Yeah. Uh, I like when he sits next to Ruth Ann and then Ruth Ann, uh, I want to say it's like an imaginary watch. 
She like looks down. She's like, oh, look at the top. I got to go. <laughs> Whoa, hold up. She leaves. And then Summers is like, oh, man. She thinks I'm going to crown that number two biscuitbus of hers right here. And he kind of laughs and he goes, she's right, though. <laughs> yeah, I actually did like that a lot, too. It's like, it's like, man, she's painting me to be such a villain. He's like, she's not wrong. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, so I was, uh, you know, I mean, I'd seen this episode before, but I was wondering, it's like, what is this guy? Like, who is he? Like, what are we going to, what is the story going to be about with him? And I thought maybe he was going to be like this crazy, like sadistic. Is it sadistic whenever you like inflict pain? It's if you inflict pain and you enjoy it, but yeah. I don't think it's sadistic if you inflict, I mean, it's like, yeah, right, then right. every single dentist would be sadistic. <laughs> well, he's not, I don't think he's one of those, but I was wondering if that was his, like, his whole shtick. I'm trying to find the, uh, sorry, I'm trying to find the, uh, it's funny, I'm watching that scene when he goes to the brick and uh, immediately Shelly leaves. She says, bye doc, I got to go top off those mustards. Like she's going to go, it's like the most boring, like uh, menial task that you could have at the brick. And she's like, I got to go do that right now. I'm trying to see, oh, I'm not watching the Blu-ray. That's why I was trying to uh, see if, if Ruthann is actually wearing a watch or not, but it really doesn't matter if she's. <laughs> so that brings us to the next scene involving the dentist where Maggie approaches him and says, well, you know, I was supposed to go home recently, but something came up. So. Here I am with, you know, a year-long stay away from my home. And she, like, kind of, like, awkwardly conveys to the dentist that she needs to see a dentist. And, well, you just rolled up. So why don't I just go see you? Yeah, it's like it's like Maggie accidentally, like, sets herself an appointment with this dentist. Like, you can see that she's kind of dreading going to the dentist. And, you know, uh, maybe it was uh, lucky for her at the time, at least, that you know, she was she didn't go back home when she normally would, and that's when she would see her her dentist back home, um, or back in Gross Point, I should say. Uh, so yeah, it seems like she's dreading it, and then somehow the you know Doc Summers wins in the end of the scene by Maggie just accidentally setting up this appointment, uh, which later he discovers that she's got a cavity. I think it's like worse than just like the crown falling off of her tooth, which is something she was talking about. She also has a cavity. Yeah, he's got to bring her in. He can work her in at like 8 in the morning the next day. Super quick. Uh, <laughs> I got to say really quickly is that like, I think Maggie's tactic of waiting till you arrive at your hometown to see your dentist is actually very true. I think it's very good. The reasoning why is because oftentimes your hometown is smaller than the town that you are in currently. And smaller town dentists are much cheaper. <laughs> uh, I learned this as an adult. Um, oh, wow. They're much better, in my opinion. But uh, that might be moot because they're from Sicily, Alaska, and her hometown <laughs> might actually be bigger. But anyway, uh, yeah, we get to the next scene where she's in his little mobile and they're working on her. And he finishes the job and Maggie compliments him. And then she kind of overly compliments him and keeps saying like, oh, you you did like such a fantastic job. And that's what breaks the dentist. That's what breaks Doc Summers. And he says like, don't you hear yourself? You're fawning all over me. You're just saying this. Like, why don't you just treat me like a real person? Just give it to me straight. Yeah. He says, who do you think I am? A prison guard? The high school principal? Uh, he's just fed up with everyone uh, being so, just so insincere and, and so just trying trying to be nice to him so that he doesn't hurt them. Uh, but it's pretty quickly diffused because he's like pretty 
quickly after that, Maggie, like she apologizes. She's like, yeah, sorry. I charm my way through everything. That's just something I do. And he basically uh, backs off too. He's like, yeah, I kind of blew up there. Sorry about that. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's just like hard, hard on a guy, I guess, whenever everyone does. He's like, let me go, let me go um, mix up some of that amalgam. And the end of the scene is just like him standing above this amalgam machine. And it's just like, like, it's like really loud. Kind of like lingers right. on that for a little too long, but I, I like it actually. Yeah. Again, we're bringing up the theme of what, like what people perceive you as and what you actually are. Cause he says like, what do you think I am? A prison guard or a high school principal? <laughs> Two jobs in which you have a distinct uh, biased view of what the individuals would be in those jobs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's more beneath the surface than just the title of dentist. It's weighing on him that other individuals are just placing the surface level title onto him. I, I do like his performance when he ends and apologizes and he says like, I'm sorry, like of course you would be nervous. There's sharp objects all around here. It's mm-hmm. only natural to do this. Uh, it's both good performance wise and I don't know why that little piece of dialogue is actually very naturalistic. Uh, I think it's just the way that it's written that I really enjoyed uh, that very small moment. Yeah. And it's like conciliatory. They're able to like communicate and level with each other and be honest with each other and forgive each other in such a very short amount of time. Uh, It's like a, you know, it's a beautiful uh, arc of a scene, you know, the beginning, middle, end, you know? So, um, so yeah, I I like that too. I think the performance is, is pretty great from, uh, let me get this actor's name, J.O. Sanders. I've definitely seen him in in other things too. Uh, I guess we should try to list off some credits, but, uh, He's best known for the movie JFK, which would have come out a couple years before his performance here. I think he's just in a lot of, he's in a lot of movies and uh, TV and uh, theater too, apparently. Anyway, J.O. Sanders, great work here. Um, I would say for the next time we see the dentist, it's a scene that involves Chris. And I think it's kind of both a nice uh, conclusion for the dentist storyline but also for Chris's storyline. So maybe we like, maybe we start, we go back to Chris and we kind of like bring everything together at the end here. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So yeah, we'll come back and conclude with the dentist once uh, Chris meets up with him. But let's go to the beginning with Chris, which uh, Chris is coming into Joel's office. Joel is out of town. I actually forget the reasoning why Marilyn says it, but on moosechick.com, uh, she says apparently Rob Morrow, the actor who plays Joel, was shooting Quiz Show, the Robert Redford movie. I don't think that I think that lines up. I didn't really check the release dates or the production dates, but you know, at some point that movie Quiz Show was being shot and it came out and it was like concurrent with the uh the broadcast of Northern Exposure. So Rob Morrow would at some point probably have to uh be offset unless it was like in between seasons. So um, kind of a bummer. Joel is not in this episode, but I think you said it it serves as a pretty good episode, even without Joel. Um, I don't know. I still miss Joel a lot, but but uh I, I don't I don't dislike this episode as much as I did before we started recording. I think it's uh <laughs> I think it's pretty great. I think we're starting now this maybe one of the more important plot lines of the episode. Um Joel is gone, but Chris is there to see him. He is instead um, given some blood pressure medicine that Joel left for him. And I have a soundbite that I can play for this scene. My blood pressure? It's very high, 170 over 100. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he said something to me about that, the blood drive. It's a silent killer. 
Untreated, it can lead to renal failure, heart failure, stroke. Well, that's no problem for the Stevens males, Marilyn, because we generally put out about 40. That's why, the silent killer. High blood pressure. It's genetic. What are you saying, that uh, the old man, Uncle Roy, Gramps, they checked out because of high blood pressure? Uh-huh. Wait a second here. If I take these pills, I don't check out at 40. I get to live as long as everybody else. Two times a day, morning and night. I kind of find it hard to believe that Chris, like, is surprised to learn that high blood pressure is what, you know, killed a lot of the men in his family. Maybe it's, maybe it's because, like, the excuse you could say is that, you know, it was an indirect cause for, you know, what did she say, like, kidney failure, things like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like that would be hopefully common knowledge that if you have high blood pressure, you're, you can die very young, you know? <laughs> I thought I, I re- initially when I saw it, I, th- <laughs> I thought it was going in a different direction because hmm. it almost sounded like Chris was saying this in a very uh, overly joking way. Because uh. I thought the truth <laughs> was that, like his dad and his grandpa and all those before him died in like really uh, outlandish, yeah. uh, horrific ways. <laughs> like freaking. So he's saying like blood. Yeah, yeah, he was like high blood pressure. That's what killed my dad who fell off a cliff from like 5,000 miles. Like it's a bit, high um, blood pressure. Yeah, it's a bit aggro. But I do think Chris is uncharacteristically kind of aggro in this episode. And um, I I love Chris and John Corbett. It's probably, probably my favorite character of the entire series. But uh, I, I would say I feel like I feel like there's some there's a few line reads and some some things in this episode that Maybe it's like so tonally off for Chris for me, but also just the performance uh, wasn't very great for in this episode. But maybe it's like, yeah, like a line like that. It's like Chris has to deliver this line. It's like, wait a second. If, if you're telling me these pills are going to make me immortal, you know, like how do you deliver that? It, especially, <laughs> yeah, that's it's like, true. how does he not know that blood pressure is high blood pressure is bad? Um, so it's difficult, maybe. He has a really interesting exchange where he's saying, like, your pills, my pills, what pills? Hydrochlorothiazide for blood pressure. My blood pressure? And he's saying my a lot. Like, mm. he's associating, like, uh, this is no longer a objective thing. It is now his thing, which I thought was kind of uh, kind of neat writing right there. But what I was really impressed by um, is just a funny imagery. Uh, is that he says, Chris Stevens gets a reprieve. Midnight phone call from the governor. Yeah, midnight phone call from the governor, yeah. Yeah, there's there's also, I mean, I was just like on on the performance and the situation, but there's some good uh, criticisms and some good, some good like lingo going on here uh, throughout this episode. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to take over on the, uh, the pooping on Chris because the next scene is him sitting outside his trailer and a conventionally attractive woman uh, emerges from it and she starts talking to Chris saying like, oh man, are we going to, we going to ride on your motorcycle? Are we going to go out there and have fun? And then Chris starts waxing poetics about riding on a motorcycle and I, I hated that not because I had anything like wrong with the dialogue itself. It's just that I really don't like motorcycles and like loud. Uh, I hate it when they rev their engines and everything. I, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. I understand there might be listeners out here that ride motorcycles and you're saying like, no, 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 no. Let me explain to Charles why he's wrong. Like, let me tell you, you know, let me defend my my interests and my hobbies. I think that's fine. It's just that personally. To each their own. It, you got some sensitive ears, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, 
doesn't Chris want to live long now? Like that motorcycle is like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna lengthen your life, man. Well, if, if anything's going to shorten it. I think he realizes this within the scene. Cause he starts talking about what is to him. So thrilling about riding a motorcycle is kind of like that, uh, call of the void, like, you know, doing some daring sort of, uh, risky maneuvers. I think he says like crossing the double yellow line. Uh, you know, it kind of, kind of gets your blood pumping. And then he's like, huh, this is weird. I forgot, uh, I got this like pill bottle here. Yeah, I forgot to take those. Dang, I, I gotta remember to, I gotta stick on that. Like I can't keep forgetting to take these pills. And then like pretty instantly, he's like reminded of his mortality and he just decides, he's like, you know what, babe, uh, actually go on without me. I'm not gonna ride the motorcycle today. So I think it's like in this scene, he kind of realizes that. Yeah, I would you have a point, but uh, I think the way, <laughs> like when I first saw it, I thought it was just losing passion, not necessarily mm. that he was realizing the dangers of motorcycle riding. He does lose passion, I think, by the end of the episode too. Like he feels a little more depressed and kind of loses interest in a lot of stuff. Right. I, I like how he says like, oh man, like crossing the double yellow lines gives me such a thrill. It's like, well, it's like... You're putting like another person's life in danger when you do that. That's illegal. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> We're just not cool enough, Charles. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm such a stick in the mud, man. <laughs> um, we get, uh, we talked about this scene earlier when Maurice has to take over K-Bear because Chris is AWOL. Is what, um, I think actually Maurice says A-W-O-L. He, he spells it out. And while he's saying this, we do see Chris waking up. He's in the, his trailer. He wakes up and like, uh, rummages about, takes his pills, and then just like dives back under the blankets. Uh, so we get, you know, he's kind of reclusive, kind of lost interest, lost his like uh, joie de vivre, I guess you could say. Is that the proper usage of that? Uh, he, he's kind <laughs> of had it, I guess. He's he's in a rut. Right. And that carries over to the next scene where he shows up to Maurice's. And uh, that is where Maurice hands him his pink slip in two weeks severance pay which is like the worst conversation you could ever have and he expects chris to well i don't know what he expects from chris but it's definitely not this because chris flips out he says like i brought this on myself and he starts going linear and linear and starts losing what little grip he already had on reality and it's because he's feeling trapped by ritual and longevity he feels that like if you're safe, then you can no longer feel the desire to do something crazy. But the identity of Chris is this vagabond, this individual that is always up to doing all these uh, really crazy things. And if I can't do those things, then I'm not Chris. Therefore, I'm not really anything. And I think that's what's spiraling him down further and further. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, a good interpretation of this is like about the, like, who is Chris, the identity of Chris. I think also on top of this, he's just talking about how like he had no plans to live past 40. He just thought that was when he was probably going to pass away. So he lived a little too recklessly. And now that he realizes he's not going to die at age of 40, he's going to live longer than that. He's just worried about like his past is going to start catching up to him, like all these parking tickets and things like that. Um, so I've got a soundbite. Let me play this soundbite from the scene just because I feel like I feel like it was in this scene where there was like some performance issues. Oh, here, here's what we should focus on when listening to this scene. The, just the, the 
actor's reading of the scene is very, as I said, like kind of aggro, very aggressive, very hostile, very angry and worked up, which I feel like a lot of times when Chris is distressed, he's um, he's more just like existential and kind of thinking about uh, things in very poetic ways. I'm not saying that's not what is written here, but it feels a little more aggravated. And I wonder if that's the actor or if it was the direction given to him. Uh, but regardless, it feels a little, it feels a little um, alien to, to Chris. Here. I screwed up a lot in my life, Maurice, okay? But this hole here, this hole is so big and dark and wide, I couldn't crawl out of it if you gave me a thousand years, man. What the hell are you raving about? What hole? The hole. Maurice, the hole, the hole that I've dug, the one that's filled with, with spiders and parking tickets gone to warrant and bad credit collection agencies and a liver that is as big as a watermelon already, I'm sure. Something wrong with you, son? Are you okay? <laughs> oh, that's a good one, Maurice. Very funny. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm so okay that I'm going to live another thousand years, forever. Look, you've lost me. Yeah, I mean... I'm probably wrong if I were to say like we've never seen Chris get angry before. It just doesn't seem doesn't seem like the natural rhythm of it. Uh, maybe he's just maybe also the actor just wanted to try something new. I don't know if it's it's, it's hard it's hard really to decipher if it's the writing, if it's the actor's choice or the direction or, or what's going on. Yeah, I would. I'm not saying that I entirely agree with your viewpoint, but I'm seeing where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that maybe what we're trying to say is that. We don't know if John Corbett has this range in order to pull off this emotion, which is, I mean, it's no fault of him because certain actors can do, you know, they just have a wider gamut to play with. I don't think necessarily it means they have more talent. It's just that their wheelhouse falls more in that area. They're more of an individual that can extend from A to B. Because I think that John Corbett does a fantastic job of playing the quintessential character of Chris. I think he does, a, uh, like I said, a fantastic job. So him not being able to portray this range isn't like a huge slight against him. I didn't catch these performance issues that you are pointing out, but that does not mean that they do not exist. My eyes actually aren't extremely good at being able to discern uh, um, heightened emotional acting. Because, like, I'll, I'll be, like, it, I'm very easily impressed. Like, yeah. You know, individuals <laughs> yeah. just, like, raving and just, like, raging. Like, oh, You're just what, like, what great get acting. this man an Oscar, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that uh, your eyes might be better at discerning that. Though, <laughs> a little off topic, I do have, like, I can tell one actor that I think <laughs> that I know in my heart is not a good actor <laughs> that does do all those things that I just said. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. Ooh. Do not think he's a good actor. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Man, yeah, we're going to have to dive into that. I, I don't know what my opinion of Leo, I, I haven't really given a lot of thought. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we t- maybe that's it's, a subject for another time. Go ahead, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's a hot take. I'll, I'll give you, that's a flaming hot take because I think like the, the, the universal opinion is yeah. that he is a very good actor. Um, you know what? This is not really pertaining to Northern Exposure, but pertaining to like perceiving like what? Can you tell if a performance is good? You know, maybe I can, maybe I can't, but I, I certainly have, I think I have like a lot, uh, if, if I'm watching a foreign movie and the uh, the spoken language is not English, I just, you know, the performances, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell if they were good or bad. It's just like, 
anything that they are doing, if it's a good movie, I'm like, wow, this person is so good at acting, but I could never <laughs> tell, I would never know, you know, like, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I don't know what the speech should sound like to that, that language and that culture. So just anything that happens in a good movie, if it's spoke, if it's not spoken in English, I'm just like, wow, best actors. They're so good. <laughs> <laughs> I can kind of tell if only because like, it's such immense talent that like you can just hear their voice and the mm-hmm. delivery. And even if you don't understand the language, you can understand what it would sound like in English. And <laughs> you can be like the way he, like the syllables that came out and the way he twisted it, it was yeah. like, incredibly well done right there. But I think it's just like, you know, when, when talent comes, talent comes and you can tell when something is very impressive, when something is not so impressive, that is where I have uh, trouble discerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Um, well, okay. So Chris follows this scene with another very aggressive um, sort of like lashing out uh, performance at the brick. Uh, this is another one of those scenes where they just start uh, giving extras names now. Like we're supposed to know these familiar faces who we've only seen this first time. Chris is talking with Mike at the brick who sits down and joins him. And, uh, you know, Chris is obviously like in a pretty sour mood. He kind of lashes out to Mike. Um, and the guy on his other side is Earl Brunius. He gets, he gets a full first and last name. <laughs> Cause Chris is like, Oh look, it's Earl Brunius, Mr. Crockpot. Of course we, of course, it's Mr. Crockpot. We know and love him. We've never seen this guy before. Um, nothing. I'm not trying to like dog on either of these actors or their performances. I just, you know, th- thought it's interesting that they're sort of trying to like introduce these uh, these staple names, you know. But it's it's like no, th- these aren't these aren't returning characters <laughs> at all. Um, uh, that's a shame. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what do you think of this scene, Charles? Uh, at least thematically, it kind of makes sense. And when I mean thematically, I mean that like Chris is reducing people down to ants and grasshoppers, mm-hmm. things in which people are not, but they're very simplistic <laughs> viewpoints in which you can understand. Like you have an idea of what an ant is. You have an idea of what a grasshopper is. So, uh, it kind of flows with the two other plot lines of identity right here. I did like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's good delivery, but at, at the very least, I thought it was at least good memorization of when Chris points at an individual and he goes, ant. And then he points at himself, he goes, grasshopper. And he looks at another individual and he beats it very well. And he says, ant, grasshopper. And he's doing this all without breaks. Yeah. Um, there's no cuts. So I thought at the very least, I don't know if the performance is good. I can at least say that like at least John Corbett is hitting the proper beats at the right moments. It's a specific timing that he is doing. No, yeah, I definitely think he he was acting really well in this scene. I think uh, if anything, it's just sort of like the portrayal of Chris. We don't normally think of Chris as being such a hothead, um, but that's not to say he can't be and he hasn't been before. And I do actually really like this scene, even if it's uh, more of an aggressive Chris. Um, yeah, I love the delivery that you're saying. And I also love when Hauling has to like 86 him. Like, you know, Hauling walks up and he's like, all right, Chris, we've had enough. And then Chris like points at Hauling and calls him an ant. And um, I, I actually can't remember. Is it, is it, is it framed like where Hauling is like, what did you just say to me? And then like Chris says it again, ant. And then Hauling says, I wish you hadn't done that, Chris. Afraid I'm going to have to 86 you. And he like, kicks him out. Um, yeah, I think the performance, the 
uh, pacing and sort of the framing of that exchange is, uh, you know, has the right beats uh, to, to really land pretty effectively. Well, the issue was resolved a little further down the road because Hauling comes to visit Chris at his trailer, which is decked out in Christmas tree lights. I don't know if this is necessarily like Christmas tree lights, but they're, they're like definitely string lights and mm, definitely mm-hmm. in the color of Christmas. And <laughs> I actually thought they looked really cool. Yeah, it's a very pretty... Um, Again, uh, we talked about this on Patreon, like comfort shows. I feel like this is a very comfortable moment, even if it's uh, even if it's kind of like wrought with some despair. It's just a cozy night, and they're sitting at the fire pit, and they're passing a bottle of booze. Chris says something like, "You know, I've been drinking since noon, and I can't even can't even get a buzz." Passes the bottle to Holling, who partakes. And um, let's see, I got a little soundbite here. It's basically just like Chris talking about. It's in a way for me, it was kind of just like a reprise of, you know, talking about like how his past is catching up with them. He wasn't expecting to live this long. Uh, well, let's listen to it. We can talk about it. Let's see. I've got a soundbite here. I had a rhythm going. You know, I was, I was Chris Stevens, shooting star, eyes blazing across that sky with Hendrix and James Dean Rimbald, you know. Thought I had my ticket punched, but Stevens' jeans. At my old man had the decency to get off the planet. Now who am I going to be? Hmm? Some guy with a pillbox and a Chevy Lumina? I mean, what's next for me, Holland? An old folks' home? Rocking chair, shower, respirator? And I think what changes up in this scene is, like, Holling will go on to, like, talk about, you know, it's not so bad being being old. Like, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not all boring, you know? Yeah, I mean... He's kind of the best character to do it because he's saying that you just have to readjust your pacing in life. And Holling is an individual that's going to live very long. Right, yeah. Whereas Chris was going to leave at the age of 40. So it would be this character that is going to be very old, trying to just tell this other individual how to reevaluate, how to readjust their new life. Yeah, like the perfect character to to give them this perspective that this new perspective he might need. Um, though I will say I was kind of grossed out about hauling, talking about, uh, it's like getting more nookie now oh, yeah. than he did when he's, it was like, <laughs> it's pretty, you know, it's dated. It's pretty bad. Thankfully, Chris, uh, you know, diffuses the situation. He's like, no, I don't have any interest in anything now. Not even like that, you know? So, yeah. So I think after this, if you're ready to move on to the next scene is when, uh, sort of, um, what's the word? Coincident, serendipitously, Chris and the dentist meet, uh, out front of, in front of this, you know, ledge, this beautiful vista, but this kind of, a free fall drop, like below them, this ledge of a cliff. Chris is like riding up on his chopper and, um, yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. Like you said, uh, it's like this ledge where I guess some people take their lives off yeah, of. They, they do mention that in the scene. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. is that what they were? Is that what they were coming here for? Who knows? Uh, I think they say. Oh yeah, right. Chris was. Yeah, Chris says he was just going to go say. throw his uh, blood pressure pills. Right. You got to make a dramatic throw. <laughs> right there. Uh, I like the scenery of this one. Um, like you said, you, you can see the river being shot to the left and the dentist on the right. Whenever. We're just getting to the scene. Uh, it's wide. It's very beautiful to look at. Perfect moment for like, you know, sentimental talk about life. 
Mm-hmm. And this is what the two are mainly talking about. Yeah, the dentist, uh, funnily, you know, to uh, related to my life experience, well, the dentist here is like upset about how the way, he's like, the way people lie to you, you know, we make a compact, the dentist and the patients, like you promise to brush your teeth and floss. And, you know, if you can fulfill that into the bargain, like you'll be good. Well, yeah, it's funny because my traumatic childhood of a dentist lying to me, telling me that I was fine. (laughs) (laughs) These cavities. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting dialogue right here, how he's framing it and saying like, uh, we have a societal agreement, like, I'm going to say one thing and you're going to say yes, but you're probably lying to me, but I can't call you out on your lie because (laughs) this is the agreed upon dialogue that we said that we would have. And eventually just weighs upon him that we're just putting up with these uh, niceties, these pleasantries when we can't, he he can't just come out and say like, no, I know you haven't been flossing. (laughs) This is why your teeth are in the state that they are in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a weird social contract that's going on. And let's see. So that's the dentist kind of uh, letting out his baggage. Chris talks about, um, you know, he never took care of his teeth because he wasn't going to need them. You know, as we talked about a lot in this episode, he expected to be dead by the age of 40 and, uh, you know, didn't ever think he was, you know, he wasn't going to live old enough to need like dentures or whatever. So, but this piques the dentist's interest. Uh, he's like, really, you've never, you haven't like, he, he went to the dentist, Chris went to the dentist like once, uh, when he was in like juvenile detention or something. So the dentist is very curious to see Chris's, Chris's mouth and see his teeth and Chris obliges. And the surprise kicker is that, you know, Chris's teeth really aren't that bad. I think, uh, the dentist says something like, you know, if you, um, come for a couple visits, you know, and if you stick to a very diligent program of like brushing your teeth and flossing and being on top of it, you're going to be fine. Like there's nothing wrong with your teeth. Chris was very worried because, you know, as we said, he never took care of his teeth and now he's going to have to live with these like rotten teeth because he's, because he's going to live to be an older man. But as it turns out, the reality is, uh, no, you know, like it's going to be okay if you just work on it bit by bit. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the idea of just our fear of the insurmountable future of getting old and just life in general, you know, it doesn't, for Chris, you know, it doesn't end. You just got to work on it bit by bit. And it's like anything else, you know, that's not something you necessarily need to be afraid of. It's just one step at a time, which actually I think is the ending sentiment, we'll get there in the, in the closing monologue, but yeah. Yeah, that's a really great read on it. I, I think that Chris has been living a life of widely oscillating from one end to the other end, and you get short-term results from doing that. You get very mm-hmm. high highs, and he doesn't care about the very low lows because he's not going to experience them whatsoever. But once you frame the question as saying that you need incremental lifestyle changes, things that you cannot solve in one hour, you solve them in years instead, you just have to keep doing them, that frightens him because that it's almost like a commitment thing. Mm-hmm. It's like it speaks to someone that says that like you have to have a solid foundation now in order to build a house upon it, which would be your life. And the dentist is explaining to him that, like, 
No, like it will be just like a maintenance program and you have to keep working on it. You have to be diligent, but you can still, it's not too late for you. Yeah. Like you can yeah. always, you know, you can always still return back to this. Yeah. Like it seems like uh, a lifetime of uh, mistreating his teeth is going to be an insurmountable task to to fix it and to correct his teeth. Um, but, you know, it really isn't. He's not going to have to like, yank teeth out at the end of the day it's just like yeah just brush your teeth regularly floss them like it's not hard like you just have to do it's all like really small pieces you know it's not as scary as it as it seems uh so yeah we kind of get the final uh bit with chris when he's returning to k-bear uh thankfully he is not actually fired status quo returns he's back uh at the helm of k-bear and this kind of like radio monologue goes on as Maurice and Ed are getting rid of that uh, wax statue. And yeah, I really like the the ending sentiment here with Chris. I don't know if you want to touch on um, some specific things he says. It's a really nice closing monologue that I don't want to play here because it does have some like background music behind it. Um, on the Blu-rays that we're watching, the song is They Can't Take That Away From Me which is really nice and pretty. On the DVD, it's like more of like a soul track, which is kind of lament, lamenting in a way, in a similar in a similar vibe. But um, the closing sentiment is, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. So yeah, sort of the idea that Chris is going to embark on old age and it's not something to really be afraid of, just baby steps. Right. I think that the thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, right when they're pivoting to the scene, we see a shot of backpackers going through town. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because it's it's showing like the transitive nature of things and how Chris used to be like that, used to just be traveling from location to location without settling down, and now he's comfortably in the seat of K-Bear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It also ev- evokes like the idea of like life is a journey and it's like uh, these two journeyers that we see walking past K-Bear, literally, uh, they're not on motorcycle or on a plane. They're walking one step at a time. Uh, you know, that's what hiking is, I guess. And that's a, that's a pretty good metaphor for uh, these this closing sentiment that he gives. Why do you think this episode was titled Jaws of Life? Yeah, we kind of brought that up earlier. Uh, Jaws, obviously, dentist. Um, life maybe having to do with this existential crisis that uh, Chris is going through here. That's my best read. Do you have any? Uh, do you have anything else? I don't have a great read. So, like, basically, what the Jaws of Life are is that back in 1961, uh, it was invented by this individual named George Hurst who saw a stock car race accident and he saw that it took workers about over an hour to get someone out of the car. And he thought that was, you know, ridiculous because within an hour, an individual could die. Uh, Previously, they had used circular saws to get people out of vehicles, but that had a lot of drawbacks. The saws can create sparks. It could start a fire. It could stress the victim out. It can create a lot of loud noises and (laughs) it was really slow. So He wanted to invent something that would be a lot more faster, stronger, and more versatile, which is where this uh, little hydraulic rescue tool is. So it's kind of a combination of using a cutter and a hydraulic ram. And within two minutes, you could just get the roof right out of a car 
and you can save the individuals that are in a car crash right here. And he calls it Jaws of Life after he observed people saying that their new device snatched people from the jaws of death. Nice. Yeah, uh, that's basically what they are. Now, in this episode, there was no cars, but we can argue that the three individuals are trapped in the confines of what other people are thinking of them or even within their own thoughts of what they think they are. So with Maurice and the dentist, they are encaged by what other individuals perceive them to be, and Chris is trapped by what he thinks he ought to be. And I guess it isn't until external forces in whichever form they take gets them out of that situation, gets them out of that mindset. The aforementioned Jaws of Life being the tool to get them out. Yeah, I definitely like that read a lot. Uh, I can see a direct corollary between the Jaws of Life as like a life-saving um, machine and these um, high blood pressure pills that Chris gets. You know, that definitely lines up very directly with Chris's storyline. And uh, yeah, the imagery of Jaws with dentists um, kind of fits as well. But obviously, I think what you said is uh, everyone is sort of being saved from their current situation in life, whether it's uh, other people's perceptions of them, uh, interactions with them, or just with Chris, you know, his own um, his own conception of, of what his life would have been or, or will be now. I guess it's kind of ironic that the very last scene is Maurice's wax statue uh, being decapitated, being <laughs> crushed by a vehicle that, you know. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's something right there. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess you could say it evokes like a, yeah, like a a car wreck in a way, just because it's machinery just destroying this this statue. Okay, Charles. Now is the time in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure, and we get their outside opinion. But uh, at this point, we have our guest today is Ellie who we found on Twitter back in October of this year, she had published an article about Northern Exposure in the Crimson, the Harvard Crimson newspaper. And um, I don't know what it is. I guess uh, if I guess because Northern Exposure is not uh, you know very talked about on Twitter that if you mention it, we'll we'll probably see you and you know we're there for you if you talk about Northern Exposure on Twitter. So uh, I don't know how this came into our, radar, you know, but um, read the article. It's pretty great. And, and we'll be sure to link that in our episode description. But it turns out Ellie, uh, in a way, is sort of a new viewer to Northern Exposure, as you'll hear uh, when she begins to speak. She says that she started watching the show this summer. So obviously, you know, not a, not a first time viewer, but a relatively new fan of the show who is already sort of expanding the reach of the show um, through this article, at least. Uh, so let's go ahead and hear from Ellie what she thought about this episode. Hey, y'all. My name is Ellie Powell, and I am a college freshman in the Boston area. I recently wrote an article about Northern Exposure for my school newspaper, The Crimson, talking about the show as a hidden gem that deserves a lot more credit and viewership for the boundaries it broke as a piece of primetime television. I got into Northern Exposure over the summer and was so excited to be invited onto the podcast as 
a quote-unquote long-time fan of the show, but also is a huge fan of y'all and of the podcast, which I find really, really fun to tune into. So thank you so much for the invitation. To the episode itself, I thought it struck a tone that was deeply life-affirming while still super funny in a way that only Northern Exposure can really achieve. One line that I found particularly engaging or endearing, should I say, was uh, when Maurice is talking about how Madame Tussauds is the most famous wax museum in the world, as though he were somehow keeping track of the levels of fame of various wax museums around the world. I found the whole Maurice storyline in general to be very interesting, especially as someone who does a lot of classics work, so a lot of ancient Greek and Latin. I thought it was vaguely reminiscent of two stories from Greek mythology, both that of Pygmalion, in which the sculptor falls in love with his sculpture, and of course, that of Narcissus. I also thought this episode had a lot of great acting from John Corbett, especially in an early scene with Marilyn in which she gives him the pills, and then of course later with Maurice as he's being fired. And generally, I thought that this episode presented a really refreshingly honest depiction of an existential crisis. I think that often in movies and TV, you see existential crises as a character, you know, wallowing around in bed and being sad. With this, you know, Chris is angry. Chris is angry that his life is going to go on for longer than he thought it would, which sounds crazy when I say it, but it makes sense in the context of his character and in the context of the episode. So I thought that that was really great. On a lighter note, I always find it very funny when they have dentistry scenes in Hollywood because you have actors with perfect teeth being told that their dental hygiene is awful. I really loved the moment towards the end of the episode between Chris and Holling because really who would know how to deal with longevity quite like Hollingwood? I thought that that was a really good employment of, I guess, both their characterizations, that of Holling and that of Chris. The wax statue storyline also, of course, demonstrated a really interesting commentary on death and on life as Maurice tries to figure out how to get rid of something that feels like a very obvious proxy for himself. So just as Chris is having an existential crisis, you see Maurice sort of have one as well in his own way. So that was really fascinating, I thought. And the merging of the storylines between Chris and Dr. John was done really artfully too, though it did sort of leave me with the question of was Chris really just going to chuck the pills? And I hope that the answer was yes. I, I think I'm telling myself that the answer was yes. Um, in terms of criticism, I don't have much. I thought it was a really solid episode all around. I wish Ed had had a bigger role, but I'm also just sort of an Ed fan in general. So that is not anything substantial in terms of criticism. And then I think when I'm looking at a place in my life in which I was stuck and then came out of that stuckness um, with more knowledge than I came into it with, I don't know if I can think of a particular physical place in which I've been stuck, but I'm taking a course this semester in which we read a book every single week, a new book every single week. And as with any curriculum, you are not going to enjoy every single book on the syllabus. And one that I struggled with a lot at the beginning was St. Augustine's Confessions, in part because the prose in Confessions is fairly dense, and in part because the content didn't seem super engaging right off the bat. It's about a man's journey to converting to Catholicism. But coming out of it, I felt like I had a way better understanding of human nature on the whole. And I found the parallels between my life and really like the life of the modern person and Augustine to be just incredibly fascinating and engaging in ways that I totally did not expect. There's this one great line in which Augustine says before he converts to Catholicism, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And I thought that was really funny because I think it reflects a lot of what we see in like diet culture specifically today, where it's like, I'm going to eat well starting tomorrow or something like that. Like, let me have my cake first. Um, so I felt like I gained a lot of perspective on, I think, just the ways of humanity on the whole, I guess, through St. Augustine's Confession. And it made 
the uh, seminar that I had after reading the book really all the more worthwhile having actually read the book and engaged with the text on a deeper level. So I think that that's all that I have to say here. But again, thank you guys so much for allowing me onto the podcast. This was so fun. And I don't know, I hope that everything continues to go well. And I am going to continue listening. So again, thank you so much. Lee, you've seen The Social Network, right? Yes, the Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Aaron Sorkin script and David Fincher directed Academy Award winning movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, the premise of the film is about like how Facebook started up in Harvard. Uh, <laughs> there's always a line in the social network that's like been ingrained into my mind ever since I had first seen the film. And it's whenever the Winklevosses are talking uh, amongst each other along with their partner about what to do against Mark Zuckerberg, who supposedly has stolen their idea of Facebook. And Tyler is trying to say like, oh, we got to like, we, we, we got to put this guy down. We got to go beat him up. Yeah, we got to just really put this thing into dispute. And Cameron says, we're not starting a knife fight in the Crimson and we're not suing anybody. And the way he says the Crimson is the one that stuck through my mind. And that's the only reason I even know what the Crimson is at all. The Harvard newspaper, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right there. We're not starting a knife fight in the Crimson and we're not suing anybody. I can't say I've ever read an article of the Crimson before, except before this. So, uh, but yeah, kudos Ellie, great writing. But yeah, I really like what Ellie has to say. She says it's deeply life affirming, but also balances that act of being super funny in a way that like Northern Exposure could do. Um, she says that one of the most funniest lines to her, or at least something that's really interesting to her, is that Maurice says that Madame Tussauds is the most famous wax museum ever implying that he would keep track of the level of fames amongst maxi museums. Like he would <laughs> yeah. be, he have like a Rolodex of knowledge on that. Yeah. Is that like how many competing wax museums are there? Like, is it, is it really that hard to be the most famous wax museum? <laughs> Again, Charles, we talked about this in the episode, but I don't, I don't think uh, either of us have ever been to a wax museum, though they exist apparently. <laughs> um, I like that she talks about Greek mythology. We don't talk about Greek mythology enough on our podcast. I think, uh, I think previously in the past, someone, actually maybe multiple times, our guests have um, related Chris to sort of like a Greek chorus, because he's always coming in at random parts in an episode and sort of giving a, uh, giving just sort of a spiel about the general feel and, and ideas that are happening throughout the episode. Yeah, well, that's always been like a gap in my knowledge is predominantly history, but even more so on... Uh, like Greek mm. or Roman history or anything like that. I would not be able to provide you anything on that. Uh, that is very interesting that Ellie is able to bring that about in the context of this episode. Uh, I, I like how she mentions that little tidbit about how, you know, Hollywood actors and actresses would go to the dentist and they would always remark like, oh, your teeth are awful. But like, you know, <laughs> that's like one of the most common things for uh, actors and actresses to do is to like, you know, do a little teeth realignment, make sure things are good. I think, um, <laughs> uh, who is that famous actor? I want to say Leonardo DiCaprio. I, I can't remember. It's someone like, it's a super A-list. Fella. Okay. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Uh, you can definitely tell he got teeth realignment. He's got some teeth fixture uh, going on there. <laughs> Fixins. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it is It is sort of, um, what's the word? Like hypocritical? That's probably not it, but um, just the fact that Anytime you see a dentist in film and TV, typically their subjects, at least uh, especially at this time period in the 90s, are, you know, I wouldn't say Northern Exposure is movie stars, but, you know, kind of like attractive looking people. So 
their teeth are usually just fine, you know? Especially Chris was like worried about his teeth and John Corbett is like such a hunk in this show. So uh, we wouldn't expect him to have, uh, he just, you know, does it doesn't fit for him to have bad teeth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a, you know, speaking of Chris, Ellie mentions that there's a great employment of Chris and Hauling, kind of a juxtaposition between somebody that's already, you know, been through the throes of life and still has plenty up ahead and he can kind of guide Chris. And you know, also to go along with the theme of juxtaposition, she mentions the use of wax. It's a good commentary of life and death and the legacy that we leave behind. Mm. Yeah, I think I remember you talking about that in our episode, uh, Hauling, the scene between Hauling and Chris and how that's sort of a perfect pairing. Like Chris is going through a bit of a crisis. And uh, I mean, who better than Hauling at this very moment to kind of come in and say, you know, because Holling's going to live such a long life. He's, you know, it's, it's not it's not so hard. It's not all that bad getting old. Ellie talks about crises in this episode and how Northern Exposure, or maybe particularly this episode, kind of explores those crises well. It's not all sad and moping and just being without purpose. I think she says like curling up in your bed and and closing the window drapes. Though I think Chris, for for one moment, you know, he hears like a radio broadcast and you know, goes back under the covers, but there is a lot of talking about, um, talking about your problems and existential crises and, and speaking out loud about it. And, uh, as we talked about sort of the aggression that, um, what's the word, the aggression that comes through Chris, uh, when he's dealing with this. Yeah. I mean, it, it really makes sense though. If you, you know, if you just think about it for a little bit, because not every single problem can be solved by logic. You really have to talk things out. It's usually the way yeah. in which you can broker a situation. Uh, it's even more difficult when you have to broker it with yourself. So, you know, Chris is really just mulling to himself. But once you get those thoughts out there, you have more things to play with. You have more uh, ideas to grasp onto and seeing how you can rearrange those thoughts into something that can help guide you out of this. Definitely, definitely. I like uh, Ellie's response. I think we we ask all of our guests to put themselves in Joel Fleischman's shoes. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you were uncomfortable and in, in the end, you maybe gained or learned something from it? And Ellie um, gives her anecdote of, well, in this class that she's taking, she has to read a new book every week. Have you ever done that, Charles? Re- read one book a week? Uh, no, but I we have. did like, <laughs> we've done something like, kind of like the inverse of that. I know you've done it because we were in the same like we had the same teacher and she was also a guest on this podcast, Ms. Mm, McFarland. Yeah. She made us write three essays a week. Oh yeah. So it's like kind of similar, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> yeah. I guess the, the other side of that, of that stick. Um, but, uh, she talks about, you know, maybe starting a book that maybe you hated while you're reading it. And then in the end, sort of, uh, Maybe it all gels together. She's talking about reading this uh, Saint Augustine work, and uh, and and yeah, I mean, have you ever? I don't know. For me, typically, I feel like when it comes to reading, if it's if it's a book that I'm going to start reading, I probably have sort of formed an opinion about it in my head already, or at least an opinion of how much I'll enjoy that book. So I know going in, like, I want to read this book. This is something that I want to do, but. You know, if you think back in college or even high school, we were assigned so many assigned readings. You know, it's it wasn't our choice to pick up that book. And, uh, you know, maybe you hated it. Uh, but I don't know. Do you have any experiences uh, specifically with, with any book like that? 
Uh, I guess just like in book clubs predominantly <laughs> would be the only situation. I'm very similar to you. And I imagine that actually this uh, motion is probably held once you get past college, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes you'll just find the things that would already interest you and you consume that type of media. You don't have anything else that's being thrust upon you. But it's actually really good to have something in which there's no in which like, there's no way you would know that this is good or bad and yeah. someone else is forcing it upon yourself to read and not only just read, but also to analyze. I'm pres- you know, presumably they're doing something with these books every single week. I don't know if it's like a quiz or whatever, if they had to write a paper, but they're doing something well uh, with it. And she mentioned that initially she found the pros to be uh, like maybe dreary, just something that she just didn't really like. Um, and which it just, ha- you know, that happens all the time. You read something, it's just not in your boat. And there's nothing wrong with it or anything like that. But she said something that I thought was very interesting. She said that one of her favorite quotes in that book is, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And she relates it to this diet culture. (laughs) And the way that I think about it is that oftentimes we'll do like a proclamation that we're going to do something. And that sounds better in our minds than the actual implementation of that idea. Yeah, And the proclamation is oftentimes done in front of an audience, whether it's like the <laughs> audience of social media, the audience of your family and friends. You're making a show of it, and you're, you're trying to like say that you've already put in the work without actually putting in the work. And you have no idea how difficult it's going to be uh, because, you know, we're all guilty of this. It's super simple to say something and then you let it drift off into thin air. And we're like, all right, well, that's done, rather than working on something for – months on end, maybe even years on end to get the results that you want. It's very instantaneous results. And Ellie said that, you know, after she actually read the book and engaged with the text, she actually got something, you know, meaningful out of it, which goes back to her statement about diet culture. Instead of saying that, like, she kind of like half-ass read St. Augustine's confession, she actually did go through with it. She weathered the storm and she came out, you know, with a better perspective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that whole quote sort of, the Lord make me chase sort of encapsulates uh, the experience and I guess growth or, you know, just enjoyment, Ellie's enjoyment of uh, learning or gaining something at the end of that book. Um, What's the word for that? It's not, is it dissonance? Uh, Is it psychological dissonance or basically the idea that, you know, we have an idea of who we are, who we want to be, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, what we want right now and who we are right now often clashes with this idea we have in our in our heads of who we really are. And I guess that's kind of more recent this episode too, right? I mean, he has his own image of himself and um, that is constantly being challenged by everyone else who I think, Charles, you're putting it like sort of the audience, the way other people see him challenges his own, um, his own uh, idea and image of himself. Right. Yeah. That's a really good read on it. Uh, like we're uh, yeah. we're going we're really tying this all together right here. Yeah, it's all stirring together. It's all mixing nice. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just saying that uh, I thought that Ellie did a really great job. Uh, really digging deep into this episode and really trying to ring out every single you know symbolism reading that you can out of this episode. Yeah, and once again, if you'd like to read Ellie's article in the Crimson, we're going to link that in the episode description. But also, if you're just online and searching for it, it's thecrimson.com, and the article title is Hidden Gems, colon, Exposing Northern Exposure. Uh, I think it's in the arts section of The Crimson. 
But yeah, thanks so much, Ellie, for coming on and giving us your thoughts on this episode, uh, especially like during this Thanksgiving break, this week here that we have. Um, and Charles, yeah, it was great having you on uh, Patreon. You came over and we cooked some food on the Patreon from the Northern Exposure Cookbook. That was a lot of fun. Talking about fall fashions, which I'm sure if you've checked our Twitter by now, then you've seen uh, we posted sort of a link. It's a public uh, post on our Patreon talking about the different fashions of Northern Exposure, at least the first two seasons. But yeah, it's been it's been a great time. Yeah, definitely. What do we uh What do we got next week? Okay, so next week is season five, episode four. The title is Altered Egos. Ideas for what that might portend? Uh, I mean, immediately right off the bat, something <laughs> dealing with identity. I mean, it's 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 in the <laughs> it's in the title, right? That altered egos. Yeah. Uh, isn't there like a isn't there a film also called that around that time? I was just thinking of that. I'm thinking of the movie Altered States, but let me just go, do a oh, quick yeah. Google search on altered egos. See what comes up. Hmm. No, I mean, there's a, the first thing that comes up, I think is a book, uh, but that was released after this episode aired. Uh, well, I mean, I think you've got a pretty good guess there. It's some, some sort of, uh, episode dealing with identity, which we will discuss next week. Charles, uh, I'll talk to you then. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Ellie for being our guest analyst. If you like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.